Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joined back on the podcast today um, by Trisha Keelty, who is Head of Social Justice and Policy at St. Vincent de Paul. Trisha, it is great to have you back on, and I think you are definitely in league for one of the, there's a number of you yourself, Michael Taft. Uh, Louise uh, Bayliss, I think, are in line for most appearances on Reboot. Listen, it's great to have you back. Thanks. Glad to be here. It's always good to be here. Thanks, Rory. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, um, obviously, we've had lots of conversations down the years around um, poverty and inequality and, you know, Ireland's whole economic model and our social policy model. Um, and in ways, it feels that what is happening when I look at it now, that inequality, while our, you know, Gini coefficient supposedly um, is, well, is uh, saying that we've become more equal. And of course, those figures are from 2021 and not uh, 2022. Um, What is happening right now in terms of the cost of living crisis and the way it has come out of the pandemic I think we are seeing deeper inequalities in this country than we have ever seen in many, many decades because of this combination of, you know, there are, you know, a, a proportion of people, the top 20, 30% who are doing, you know, quite well. Okay. Um, but then there's a growing middle and the bottom um, who have been squeezed by the pandemic, lost income, went into rent arrears, the housing crisis. Um, and now face this cost of living crisis on top of that. Um, and, and in particular, there's that generational gap, there's an income gap. How do you see it now? What, what situation are we in? So I suppose since we last spoke, I think it was, you know, around budget time last year, so yeah. much has changed. But I think when, one thing that's standing out to us is just when we talk about the cost of living crisis, you know, it's really featuring very heavily both political discourse and the media. There's been a cost of living crisis for years uh, for people in poverty. Um, in 2019, over 800,000 people were in enforced deprivation, which means they couldn't afford basics like adequate food, heating, uh, clothing, those kind of things. So really, for people on very low incomes, having no options, making difficult choices is part of your, of your everyday life. And that was a reality for so many people. Obviously, now that is exacerbated and people are in even more difficult situations. So since the end of the pandemic, you know, the last time we spoke was around that mounting utility debt. Yeah. And that had emerged, you know, because people were home more during uh, lockdowns. They were consuming more gas and electricity. So towards the end of. And people lost their jobs. and Yeah. And we're on lower incomes and everything like that. So we have a cohort of people who were in um, disadvantaged circumstances in the first place, were hit hardest by the pandemic. Um, they had to use savings. They were on reduced incomes. They had higher costs. And then you had another cohort of people who weren't affected by the pandemic, were able to work from home, were on higher incomes probably in the first place. They were able to build up savings. So then now these households are able to absorb those price increases that everybody is is feeling and those on the lowest incomes have literally nothing left. They're either in debt 
um, and already making uh, very difficult decisions, cutting back on essentials. So we really are now at a point where we're going to see a diversion, even greater diversion between people on very low incomes um, and people on, on uh, who are maybe just about getting by prior to this now being pulled into poverty um, unless there is a really targeted approach to the resources and dealing with the cost of living um, crisis in the, in the coming months ahead. Yeah, uh, we'll come back to that question, that debate of, around the targeting. Um, the, the first thing in terms of your own experience in St. Vincent de Paul, what are you seeing in the in recent kind of months and weeks in terms of people coming to you? Are you seeing an increase or, you know, different types of people coming to you or for different ways in terms of support or what are your figures showing? So, so far this year, we've taken um, 78,000 requests for help um, and that's up in the region of 20% compared to last year. So really through winter, you know, it was incredibly busy, particularly January and February um, with people who had very big bills or people who just couldn't afford to keep their prepay meter going if they were on um, hazy go meters. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a lot of households who were maybe putting in 20 euro a week into their meter last year and that was giving them the full week usage we're now only getting three days usage so literally by the end of the week you had people sitting in the cold and the dark and that was the reality for many people then others who had maybe very significant bills either as a result of covid or just given the the massive price increases that we've seen um at risk of disconnection very worried not knowing how they were going to pay it and people having multiple debts, um, you know, rent arrears is also a feature of people who are coming to SVP for help who are at risk of becoming homeless. Um, and then also, you know, food in the last number of months, we've seen that kind of impact people. So, you know, households on very low incomes have very set budgets. They know exactly how much is coming in and going out. So if you've 60 euro allocated to your food shop um, and that basket of food goes up to 70, 80 euro, you don't have anything left to put towards that. So your shopping basket gets smaller. You're taking yeah. home less food. Um, and we're seeing, um, I know Louise Bayless and Spark has been saying yeah, this as well, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, the podcast here, yeah, recently. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, she's seen that with lone parents. And we're seeing that as well in, in, in our um, services, you know, and for children as well, trying to shield children from the effects of this, um, you know, cutting back on their own needs so that they, they can provide for their children. Again, that's something that was happening before, but now it's just people are at breaking point. And that is a significant, you know, a 20% increase, you know, in people coming to, you know, St. Vincent de Paul for support. That is a huge jump in terms of in a, you know, as you're saying from this time last year, um, you know, that, that, that is shows that, the level of you know hardship that's out there, real hardship that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it, it's also important to say, like that, we did obviously see the impact of extending the fuel allowance, increasing the rate as well for people. Um, that obviously made a difference, gave people temporary relief. So obviously, if you provide people with income, you know that's going to help. But really, you know, those kind of short-term measures. Uh, aren't going to be sufficient because we are going to experience kind of a high rate of inflation for a long time. And then also, you know, all the poverty that's underneath all that as well, that needs to be addressed as well. 
Yeah, yeah. It it's it's it, you know, I was really struck by because you know following these figures, you know, in recent years and in particular, you know, from the housing angle, looking at you know lone parents, for example, as a group, and the CSO figures, which were showing that, you know, um, they had the highest one of the highest rates of after they paid their housing costs, the poverty rates. Um, and what we were seeing over the last year, and obviously this is kind of six months, so it's almost a year and a half ago, was that that rise in poverty rates amongst those who are renters um, after they paid the housing costs, when the CSO showed those figures, um, showing a third of renters who weren't in receipt of any state support were in poverty after they paid their their housing costs. You know, that that is a phenomenal um, proportion who now must be in a situation of, as you're saying, um, literally, there is nothing there. And so therefore, the whole question of rent arrears of, as you say, you know, facing eviction, and we're seeing the highest ever number of, you know, eviction notices served to tenants since the foundation of the state, that there really must be, you know, a squeeze that they must feel and the sense of kind of stress and anxiety around that. Um, as I say, particularly households like lone parents, but even, you know, um, households with, you know, different, um, you know, you know, couples or even individuals, house shares that who are in that rental situation, because if you're in your home and you own it, then there is a security. But when you're in a rental situation, a private rental and you're in rent arrears, you're living with that anxiety that now as this cost rises, you are literally in the point of potentially losing your home. Yeah, and that insecurity and that stress that goes along with that is, you can't underestimate how that impacts on people. And the feeling of when you get your own maybe social home or that security um, for families is really, you know, it, it may, makes such a difference to people being able to plan for the future. That's the reality of people who are living day to day, not sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, that constant state of being in survival mode um, all of the time and what that does to your physical and mental health is is huge. Yeah. Um, and I think that the housing issue, you know, that's that's where the energy and the housing piece really cross over because you're right. Well, I being disconnected is less um, less traumatic, I suppose, than being evicted from our home. So they're the kind of. So I'll put the utility bill on the long finger. I'll deal with that. I'll pay the rent. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of thing that happened to people. Um, and that's the, 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 the reality and uh, the impact on that is on people is huge. Yeah. And so in terms of measures, then, what do you think should be done? So I suppose, you know, the ESRI report that was published yesterday on yeah energy poverty uh, was again really stark. I think a lot of people were quite shocked by the fact that a third of people are now in energy poverty. It wasn't really surprising to us, but I think it was it's it's kind of brought the issue to the to the fore. Um, and I suppose it's just a third of all households. Yes, 29%, sorry, of all households currently the highest rate um since uh, the 90s. Um, and if we keep going on the same trajectory it could end up with 43% of households being in energy poverty um, given the, the future price increases that are expected in autumn time. In and that's where they're energy. spending more than 10%, I think, of their 
disposable income on energy costs. Yeah, that's right, which is an imperfect measure, but it does give you a sense of uh, a sense of the, the scale of the issue as well. It's a, so, for example, if, if someone was cutting back so much that they weren't spending 10%, they wouldn't be counted as energy poor. But still, it gives you a ballpark figure of yeah. where, where the, the, the level is at. So, you know, they, they, the research also showed like broad-based measures like cutting VAT benefit higher off or higher income households more. Um, so really, it's about getting the resources to the people that need it most. And you do that through our social protection system. So from our point of view, it's so important that social welfare rates are increased ahead of projected inflation to give people that extra buffer to get through the next year. Um, and I suppose from our point of view, it's also about taking the steps to strengthen our social protection system in the long term so that it's more resilient to economic shocks and that it allows people to meet their everyday living costs. Because at the moment, it's set at a level below the poverty line and below what people need to live on. Um, we also need really targeted supports for lone parents, people with disabilities, um, older people living alone. And then we're also seeing, obviously, in our work, rural households are struggling more because of the cost of transport and having to run a car, which is a necessity. Um, so people having to make very difficult decisions on what trips to take in the car, cutting yourself off from friends and families because you can't afford that petrol or um, to do that. Um, and again, I suppose the answer in the longer term is investing in um, better rural public transport as well um, to, to help people. But in the meantime, People need income supports to help them. Um, the fuel allowance, obviously, again, is a really important form of support, but it's very means tested. Um, expanding that to more households, for example, people in receipt of the working family payment would really help, would make a huge difference to those families who may not qualify for additional supports that would help as well. And then at the same time, it's about investing in services. So providing targeted income supports to those who need it and then investing in services. Um, like housing, like childcare, um, and like education. Yeah, and I, I think it's. I was struck um, by this thinking about it the other day, and in, in the work I used to do in task in the the policy analysis of, you know, our economic system and our public system and our public services. And I remember looking at, you know, the question of the cost of living in Ireland because for years the cost of living in Ireland has been substantially above. EU levels. Um, and I remember trying to, okay, why why is that the case? And why is Ireland's cost of living, you know, in particularly in over the last decade and maybe even during the Celtic Tiger as well, was going above um other countries? And in part, it is because of the lack of services that we have. So things like public childcare, and I know I tweeted during the week, it got a huge response around the cost of childcare compared to the cost of childcare here in Ireland versus countries like Italy and France, where it is, you know, just a fraction of what it is here. Um, and you have similarly, you know, transport, healthcare, education, um, and we have a general, you know, quite a you know, we know we neoliberal market model, so much is provided via the market, housing similarly, not very strong regulation. You know, we've it's it's a bit of Wild West capitalism, you know, that people and we see that in terms of the petrol stations, there's no real control over the private market, private operators, how they operate. So there's 
it's price gouging, you know, excessive profiteering left, right and center. And, and so our economic and social model is putting us in a worse place in terms of dealing with inflation than other countries. Absolutely. So they're in other countries where they do have a good system of public services um, that are affordable. They have significantly more levers then to pull to reduce costs for families where we have to adhere to market forces more so. Um, And I think like other countries that have um, subsidised childcare, affordable housing, genuinely free primary and secondary education, um, those are going to be able to cope much better where we're going to end up in a situation where governments are going to be saying, well, we can't do too much because we're going to fuel inflation in a number of ways. And I suppose, again, that's where it's about getting the resources to the people that need it most and making really smart investments in services that reduce those out-of-pocket expenses for people. Yeah, and is, is as well, do you think there should be immediate measures now rather than waiting for the budget? This is a, it's a tricky one because from our point of view, we'd be very worried if we keep doing these kind of stopgap temporary measures, although they do help people in the short term. I think it's really important about getting the budget right, getting some sort of sustainable, kind of more comprehensive measures in place that we can build upon in, in the future. I think one thing that we could do, and this is what the ESRI were suggesting, is you know pay a Christmas bonus type payment maybe in the summer months to help people get through the next couple of weeks. Um, you, people receive a double payment to social welfare Christmas. Um, I don't like the term Christmas bonus, but something like that could maybe be provided in the interim. I think yeah. there's also uh, also things that the regulator can be doing in terms of energy, the energy market. Um, it has been um, quite hands off, I would say, in relation to what they can be doing. Now they are looking at additional measures. One thing, simple, very simple thing is moving people, uh, existing customers onto the best tariffs available for new customers because switching isn't an option for people who are on low incomes a lot of the time because maybe they already have debt on their account so they can't move. If you're in private rented accommodation, it's more difficult to switch your supplier, especially if you have a prepay meter. And people who are on prepay meters in general, it's more difficult to switch so putting people onto the best tariffs um, is a way of reducing uh, the energy expenses of those households. But I think really it's so important that we get the measures right, that it's not just these temporary fixes that uh, don't really address the issue at hand, they, and especially broad-based measures which are going to benefit higher-income households more. Um, but I think there is certain things that we could do now in the summer and then it's really about getting the budget right. And of course, budget measures usually don't take effect till January. They're going to have to take effect um, from October. And, and what do you see looking ahead to the winter now? How do you see this playing out in terms of people, what they face, given we're likely to see the continued rise in, in prices and inflation? I suppose if we get the budget right, if people know that they have that income security, that certainty. If they know that they they have an increase in their income, they'll have an increase in in their social welfare rates and maybe there'll be uh, reductions in their costs, then that people will have that and that will make a huge difference. But I suppose if the measures aren't right, if they aren't going to reach the people that need it, the anxiety, the stress, all of that will will continue. People will have to 
continue to rely on organisations like SVP to bridge the gap. Um, and we're going to see long-term damage from it because um, even short spells of living in poverty or financial difficulty can have huge knock-on effects later in your life. Same for if you are living in a constant state of insecurity in terms of your housing and the impact that has both in the short and long term. Um, you know, we can't underestimate that. And I suppose we've spoken about the research that we uh, commissioned, um, by, which was carried out by Dr. Michal Collins in UCD, which looked at the public service cost of poverty. So the long term um, damage that poverty causes on people's lives, that's that. Uh, costs 4.5 billion euro every year. So the state spends that amount dealing with the consequences of poverty on people's lives. So pre- preventing it in the first place and alleviating it um, will lead to much greater savings uh, in the in the future. So you know that's the kind of mindset we've we've been here. We need to be focused on. We're already hearing that the social welfare increases that will be required are not going to be affordable. But the question is, can we afford not to? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is one of the most important, you know, debates and discussions we need to have is that this idea that somehow, you know, this question, how are we going to afford this? And as you said, it's it's similar, you know, I make the case similarly with the housing, you know, issue. We can't afford not to do it because it, it actually it's economically um illogical to say that oh, we're not going to increase spending so therefore we're going to just accept that it's actually we're going to spend more money over the medium and long term and um, dealing with the fallout from not addressing poverty from not pe- providing people secure and affordable housing um, and you know health is probably one of the best examples you know you look at the rates of health um, you know the health inequalities the huge health costs of actually dealing with the fallout over people's lives of poverty and ill health. And of course, we've had, um, you know, numerous people on this podcast before and particularly talking about, you know, I'm thinking Clean and Ikalig, you know, who've done amazing work showing this, you know, that the costs on the health system of dealing, you know, with people who become homeless and, you know, of mental health, of physical health, of poverty um, has a huge cost on the health system. And also economically, you know, even if you look at it in a crude economic terms, people cannot contribute, you know, to their full capacity and potential when they're living in constant stress, when they're living in poverty, when they, you know, and I even think in terms of people, you know, feeling, you know, abandoned by society. Why would you give back when, you know, you feel that society, you're not part of it, you know, and you have this massive inequality and all, you know, as Richard Wilkinson and all, you know, um, Kate Pickett in the spirit level show, you know, societies and economies do much better when you've less poverty, when you've more equality. And so I think it's it's a really important uh, debate that, and, and to put it back, like, there was no question that, you know, that we we could find the endless uh, pot of gold um, when the banks needed to be bailed out um, during COVID. And of course, that will be part of our, oh, well, we spent all the money during COVID and we don't have it now. Now, well, actually, we do have a surplus. We're going to have a surplus of money in the budget again this year, they're saying. Um, so it is just, it's, to me, it seems illogical that we wouldn't be doing this. And in particular, I think the question of targeting is, an, is a significant one because I think there are a lot of people who, you know, aren't, you know, just the idea of the squeeze middle is a certain extent, but who are on average incomes and um, who don't qualify for social welfare support. 
but absolutely should be getting supports and services. But because we have such a restrictive income limits in terms of supports, you know, income cutoffs, that really what we should be doing is, is I think, targeting plus raising the eligibility in terms of people getting supports. And then, as you say, providing services, because if you provide universal, you know, affordable, why not say free childcare, you know, affordable, proper housing, uh, retrofitting that is paid for by the state for people, um, then, you know, you know, the middle gain as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's that narrative that addressing poverty and the solutions to addressing poverty are of benefit to not just those experiencing it, but for everybody, because it is that ensuring that we have a social protection system that's adequate, that is compatible with um, work, that there's smooth transitions between work and welfare, and that we have universal basic services that everybody can benefit from. Um, the, there was a huge potential. The European Union has proposed an EU child guarantee, which would guarantee children in disadvantaged circumstances access to free early years care and education, free education and school-related activities, free health care, um, adequate nutrition and adequate housing. Um, now, the government has published its plan in relation to this in response to this, but it's an incredibly disappointing document yeah. that it is just a list of ex- existing actions in terms of what government is already doing. There's no ambition there in terms of what we want to do for children, because when we talk about poverty, investing early in children um, to stop that cycle and all those knock on costs, as you spoke there about the loss of potential and lost opportunity for people. You know, child poverty is such a crucial issue. But unfortunately, we it's a missed opportunity now in terms of what the government has proposed. It's very poorly linked to the goals of the child guarantee, poorly linked to evidence on what works in addressing poverty. So that's incredibly disappointing in terms of where we're going in relation to child poverty in particular. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we need to keep on the agenda. We need to keep highlighting and we need to ensure that um, the issue of poverty remains at the top of the political agenda. And in some ways, this cost of living crisis has shone a light on the experience of people who have been living in poverty for a very long time. We have heard voices on radio, on throughout the media, of people sharing their experiences um, of living in poverty over the last couple of months, which obviously it's it's very shocking and, and, and difficult to hear some of the stories. But you'd hope that it shines a light on the reality and that you can then build public support for change around those key areas that need to be addressed to ensure that people are prevented from falling into poverty in the first place and that people can move out for good. And as we, as you mentioned there, that's a benefit for everybody in society and for those people who are struggling to get by but may not qualify for benefits. It's around ensuring that we have good public services and um, our tax system is also uh, progressive in terms of refundable tax credits for people in low pay as well. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, I, I think, Tricia, just in terms of coming to a close, where do you see in terms of the whole question of, you know, our vision now for for Ireland, you know, your mission in St. Vincent de Paul is, you know, about ending poverty. You know, it's what we um, feel here. You know, so many people um, believe as well that, you know, we should have a country that does not have poverty. And in particular, that there is no child. Um, experiencing poverty 
And do you think in some level that those ambitions, which, you know, we should have as a society, are falling further away as, a, as an idea that they seem even more ridiculous? Um, but in some ways, I think now more than ever, we need to say that, you know, we shouldn't accept or tolerate any levels of poverty, that that's not a republic or society when you have, you know, such a high proportion of people. And as I said, children in particular, it's experiencing poverty. Absolutely. No, no level of poverty should be acceptable. Um, Ireland has, you know, in our declaration in the establishment of the Republic about cherishing all people equally, we need to realise that we can do it. We are a rich country. It's just about making the right choices and having the political will and resources available to do that. Absolutely. Listen, Trisha Kielty, thank you so much for joining us again on Reboot Republic. I know listeners really enjoy listening to you um, and hearing your voice and in terms of the analysis, but also in particular the organization St. Vincent de Paul and the amazing work that's done um, up and down the country uh, by people. And it was interesting, I actually had some of my students um, in my civic engagement class this year were doing their case study on St. Vincent de Paul and the work that you do. Um, and it was really interesting. And some of them volunteered in the charity shops as well. And they were really struck by um, and I was struck as well by by them talking about the role. I hadn't really thought about this. The charity shops aren't just a place where people, you know, leave in you know, things like clothes and buy them, but actually were, was acting like a space for people who were isolated to come in and talk and they would come in and sit down you know, in, in the shop and discuss with them, uh, just, you know, literally being someone to talk to. But uh, so listen, amazing work that you do. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. And listen, in terms of if people, have, is there a phone number or a website that if people want to volunteer with St. Vincent de Paul um, or maybe help out or donate or? Yeah, so um, our website is www.svp.ie um, and you can get information on donating. Um, we've we're really looking for volunteers actually at the moment. Um, we have a recruitment drive. So if you are interested about helping people in your community, working for social justice at a local level, you know, there's we're, we're crying out for volunteers. Um, and obviously then, you know, if, if people are listening to this and they are struggling at the moment, you can also request help through our website as well. Um, it's confidential and, um, you know, we are here to help as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they are there and... Yeah, do reach out. Um, and I know it can be very difficult for people and, and, but, um, they are there absolutely. And I know people, you know, who've got support and, and it's been a very good experience. Um, an important support. And just in terms of that volunteering as well, as I was saying that, uh, my students really found it, uh, and they would, um, describe the, the volunteering process itself as, as being transformative for some of them, you know, life changing. Uh, really just such a, an experience of giving and of learning about themselves. So, yeah, we really would encourage people if they can to, to volunteer. Um, Trisha, thanks so much for joining me on Reboot. Thank you, Rory. And that was Trisha Keelty there, um, the head of social justice and policy in St. Vincent de Paul. Um, and yeah, this is a, I think, a crisis heaped upon housing crisis and lack of childcare lack of affordable childcare, and I think it really does show up the cracks um, and structural problems in our economic and social system in this country that has been broadly a um, a neoliberal 
market dominated with the welfare state playing a minimal role, minimal role, and that has to change if we're going to actually really end poverty. And we can and we should have that absolutely as an ambition and something that's achieved in our lifetimes in this country. So thank you so much, listeners. Thank you to those who are patrons who um, contribute to Reboot Republic. We are an independent podcast. We are produced by Tony Groves of Tortoise Shack Media. Um, we are completely rely on our listeners, our patrons, to keep this podcast going. It costs to produce. If you can, if you support our work, if you like what we're doing, please go over to patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack and you can sign up and you give us whatever you want, the price of a cup of coffee, a month and um, you can give us a once off um, donation or whatever you can. If you can sign up, you get the podcast first. It would be great. Um, we know there's lots of people listening and are really appreciating this. And also, if you can share this around on social media, share the podcast around. The more people that hear it, the better. As we say, it is a movement. It's a tool for social change, not just a podcast. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>